0: Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is uh, good to be able to open up Ephesians and walk us through Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. We're going to do two weeks focused on this text, and so what, what I don't hit this week... Someone's going to hit next week. Um, So with that said, would you go ahead and open your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and someone coming down the aisle will give you one. All right. Well, as we jump into this text this morning, I want to start off by showing you a picture. Go ahead and throw that picture up there, Josh. This picture is of one of the strangest days of my life. If you would have showed me this picture before I was married, I would have been greatly concerned about what I was getting into. This is a picture of me on the floor next to our bed with a plate of pasta, feeding it to my wife who is on the bed. And it is very strange. If someone had showed me this picture in our premarital counseling and said, this is where you're going with your marriage, I would have thought one of a couple things happened. One is that my wife turned out to actually be really mean and for some reason was making me like lay on the floor. Or two, that I had become a very strange person and had lost my mind. But the only way to make sense of this picture is to understand the context and the bigger picture of what was going on. You see, my daughter was sick that day and my wife was in bed with her, caring for her, looking after her and my daughter being on the autism spectrum is very sensitive to different sorts of uh, sensory things, sight, sound, smells. And so all day long, my wife was comforting my daughter and she was getting hungry. And so I tried to bring in some food, but then my daughter lost her mind. She started yelling saying, get the food out of here. And so we, my my wife was hungry and I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going on a mission. So I got a plate full of pasta and I got into my army crawl position. I waited till my daughter wasn't looking and I crawled along the floor where she couldn't see me and I crawled up to the bed. I don't even think my wife saw me at first. And then I got the, I got the fork and I just popped it up at the bed. And then, and then when, when my daughter wasn't looking, my wife would just take a bite. I even set it up to where I saw the reflection of my daughter in the mirror, so I knew when she was looking away and I could get this pasta to my, to my wife. So this picture makes sense in the broader context of what was happening. And, and what I'm going to talk about today, the passage that we're looking into, that, that Paul is drawing us into, the main takeaway is that we can't make sense of the crazy things in our life unless we get the bigger picture. Paul is going to give us the bigger picture of his calling, the bigger picture of what the church is called to do, and the bigger picture of of what God is doing in the whole world. So let's dive into the text and see what's going on. We'll start with Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now what you might notice at first is that this feels like an incomplete sentence, because it is. It's interesting because this passage comes on the tail end of Paul's explanation about how God is bringing Jew and Gentile together in the same body, and then what happens after this passage is that Paul prays this beautiful prayer about Christ uniting all things. Well, well, what happens is a lot of scholars think that Paul is beginning to launch into that prayer, which will come later in the chapter, but then. He like has a thought and he stops mid-sentence and goes on a tangent. So basically what we're exegeting today is scripture, it's God's word, but it's Paul going on a tangent, a rabbit trail, like an ADD moment for Paul where he's supposed to be launching into a prayer, but then he kind of goes on a tangent. And the reason why he's probably going on a tangent is because he's describing himself as a prisoner of, of Jesus Christ. See, the context is, Paul is in prison. Paul is in a Roman prison, and people are probably thinking, how can this be? How can the ambassador of our king, Jesus, be in prison when Paul has been telling people all of these lofty things in Ephesians? He's talking about Christ, who's the king over all things, the one who unites and reconciles all things and how we are seated with Christ, seated with royalty. And Paul is writing these words about being seated with Christ as he's underground in a pit, in a prison. Here's a picture of what Roman prisons looked like, and presumably this would be what Paul, his situation. Basically you had, it was like a couple levels underground, and the prisoners were lowered into this pit that was moldy, smelly, um, and crowded. Prisoners were often uh, even still awaiting trial, and they would be in a situation like this. And it was, it, was a, it was associated with shame. Anyone who was in a pit like that was in a place of shame rather than a place of honor. And so here's Paul writing about how he is seated with Christ in the heavenlies from a pit underground with cockroaches, shoulder to shoulder with people. And he has to have the perspective of the bigger picture in order to write those words. Because at this point, he is suffering, and the church's primary leader at that time is is basically in a tomb, in a grave. But he is risen with Christ. So let's talk about it. What are the three ways in which Paul gives us a bigger picture of what's going on that makes sense of the suffering? First of all, Paul's, uh, God's plan for Paul. So he starts off by reminding God's people that God has a specific calling on his life. And if Paul is going to truly press into that calling, then there will be some, some suffering that comes with it. He reminds them. Of, the, of what he was called to. It says in verse two, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known by revelation as I have written briefly. So in other words, God has this special commission for Paul to, to do this particular work. The word stewardship here is much more uh, potent than our word stewardship. It's the, the word Uh, oikonomia, and it's from which we get the word economics, the English word economics. And it has this idea that God has this grand plan, this grand arrangement of the world, and therefore he has given Paul a specific commission, a specific role of how to execute that plan. And what is that? He says that, um, that he was uh, that the mystery, that there was this mystery made known to him, that he is to proclaim to others. And this mystery, the word mystery was very common at that time. There were teachers, there were like gurus who had this mysterious knowledge. It was kind of like, kind of like people were acting like they were like the modern day Illuminati, where they've got like this secret knowledge that that you only let certain people in on. Um, and what what would happen is that you if you got in. In with one of these gurus, they would give you their, their their secret teaching. But Paul's saying the mystery that he has was the mystery of all ages. How God is gonna rescue this broken world and reconcile people to each other who are alienated. And it's an open mystery that the way that he does it is through Christ. And that the secret, you 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 know all of us, even though we're not using the language of mystery. All of us are asking that question of what, what is the answer to the great mystery of the world's brokenness? With, with every, with every tear that is cried, with every uh, sense of frustration, with every, probably every other Google search, we are actually, if you look deeply underneath what's happening, we are trying to figure out the mystery of how to make this world right. And Paul is saying, Jesus is that. And he's been given the commission of proclaiming the good news to the whole world, not just the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well, welcoming them into this covenant with God. And then it says uh, in verse 4 through 6, what he he does is he continues to explain what we've talked about before, about this unique calling that Jews and Gentiles would be together in Christ. But then in verse 7, he says, Of this gospel, I was made minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, uh, given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word minister there. Often when you think about minister and when we think about minister in English, I mean, it comes, what comes to mind is like a religious professional. But that's not what that word means. It's the word diakonos, which means servant. Here Paul is, he is like pretty much the leader of the Gentile church, and he is saying he primarily identifies as a servant. That's the role that he's been given. He's been given the role of serving the Gentiles by bringing the good news to them and serving God. So so he's a servant according to God's grace, That was given and he can't even pull this thing off without the working of God's power We see the the rhythm of the way God calls us He calls us into things that we cannot do on our own, but he is the one who empowers us to do it And it says to me though. I'm the very least of the saints And in in this we get a little bit of God's humor and irony In other words, Paul was the hardliner who was anti-Gentile, who was was all about keeping the Gentiles out, and who was anti-Jesus. And God, in his sense of humor, takes this persecutor of the church and makes him the persecuted of the church. This person who lifted himself up to be the humble servant to bring the good news to the Gentiles that God is welcoming them into his family. And so, obviously, in this situation, Paul is gonna face some suffering because his calling cuts against the grain of the normal patterns of the world. To all of the Jewish people who wanted to keep the Gentiles out, those were the ones who were gonna beat up Paul and persecute him. Then there were also the Gentiles and as he was going around the Roman world proclaiming a different king than Caesar, a different king than the kings of the world, that being Jesus, a message like that will get you persecuted it will bring a degree of suffering and and so and the same is true for us I mean we saw in Ephesians 2 how God has made us uniquely for particular good works that we are his workmanship that that, that word poema that, that means uh, poetry that God has crafted each of us like a poet crafts poetry to do particular good works but we have to have, understand that if we are going to faithfully live into those good works, we are going to run up against hardship and suffering. I'm going to confess something to you. Don't tell anybody this, okay? I used to watch that show, One Tree Hill, a lie. It's like a teeny, if you haven't seen it, don't watch it. It's a <laughs> terrible show. I just couldn't stop watching it. It's like a teeny bopper show and the message of it is ridiculous. The message of it is you have this like calling in life and you should basically like leave behind all of your friends and everything that you're responsible for to go pursue this calling in life and uh, everything works out happy for you. That cuts against the, some people think that's a simplistic exegesis of One Tree Hill but if you press in further into that show that's what, what, what it's saying. But the question is, are we going to live into the one tree hill vision of calling or the Jesus take up your cross vision of calling? Because the deal is, is that when we're pursuing God and the good works that he made us to, to do, we will face trials. We will face pushback and challenge. And, and why is that? Well, that's what we get into with point number two, that God is uh, that Paul is explaining the next big picture that, of, of God's plan for the church. We look at verse 9. It says, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So he says the purpose of the church is to display, to dramatize God's wisdom to the world. To a world that might not like that wisdom. That actually says that it has its own source of wisdom. You see, the word wisdom in scripture, it carries a a different connotation than um, the old bearded man. You know, we often think of Wisdom is like a bearded man saying like, birds of a feather flock together and you know, the early bird gets the worm, you know, like little pithy sayings or whatnot. But wisdom in scripture is perf- it's, its painting a picture of a way of life. And so you see in Proverbs, there's the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. And, and God has a particular wisdom. There's a way that God created the world to exist. He created the world for us to uh, flourish spiritually in right relationship with him, socially in right relationship with others, spirit and 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 physically in right relationship with the physical world. And there's certain rhythms to life that God created that God wants to put on display to the world. But there's these things called the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places Now, this is kind of a tricky concept to explain. Um, For a while, there were a number of scholars who thought that this was primarily referring to like demonic beings, that basically if we live according to God's ways, then it's showing the demonic beings what God's wisdom is like. Other people associated the rulers and authorities with human institutions, that it was basically like the, 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 the leaders that were all around the Roman world, that God's wisdom was being put on display to them. But there's actually becoming a a scholarly consensus around the idea that, there's sort, that these things are, are seamless. It's both and. It's the idea of human institutions that have demonic influence. And both the Roman and Jewish worldview had mythologies about how there was basically like a spiritual battle that's happening in the background of every aspect of life. And, and Paul does not tell us to go like addressing them and like, you know, casting them out or anything, anything like that. But he's saying that there are these human institutions that are being ruled by demonic forces through particular ideologies, ways of life, patterns of wisdom that are not according to Christ. And so we don't go around like, you know, trying to figure out where they're at or talking to them or anything, but rather we live into God's ways and it subverts them by showing the foolishness of those ways and the brilliance of God's wisdom. So let's talk about that. You, I mean, these, these rulers and authorities were often associated with tribal deities, these demonic powers behind these tribal ways of life that were very harmful to people, that took a good part of creation and made it an ultimate thing. And you might be thinking, well, we don't have any tribal deities, do we? You chuckle because you know where I'm going with this. Absolutely, we might actually be more tribalistic now than they were then. And so this is the part of the sermon where I offend everybody, are you ready? I'm gonna walk you through what some of these tribal deities and ideologies might be that are drawing us away from Christ, that are taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. Let's start with experienceism, where you take the good gift of experiences and you make it ultimate. And that through an Instagrammable life of bungee jumping and fishing in beautiful lakes and filters that you know, block out the smog that was you know, just out of the picture, you are presenting yourself to the world and saying, I am worthy. Do you see me? And the Instagrammable life will never be enough because there are not, no matter how much bungee jumping you do, there is nothing like knowing Christ and being seen by him. All of the people who are looking in and giving you the likes, their, their, their likes are not enough to, to match Christ's love. And so experienceism is drawing us away from Christ. It's one of the rulers and authorities. Technicism, it's kind of a funny word, but the idea behind it is that we're looking for like this right, this one technology or this one method or this one thing to kind of be the answer to life's questions. And so, so technologies are good, methodologies are good, but let me give you some symptoms of technicism. Technicism, you'll know that you're in this if, it, if it's a prayerless life. If it's a life that doesn't crack open God's word, but spends hours and hours on YouTube, devoting yourself to certain gurus like Elon Musk, or Timothy Ferris, or Jordan Peterson, or whatever YouTube guru that you're drawn to, and you almost esteem them above Jesus. You wish Jesus was a little bit more like them. And the reality is, is that there's not a single technique or a single technology that will follow through on its promises. Remember how the internet was supposed to bring us all together? Didn't work out that way. Nuclear fission brought, like, warmth to people's homes, but also the threat of a nuclear bomb. The reality is, is that these technologies, these methods, they can't save us. This, I mean, it's, we see it in health fads. I mean, think about the health fads. There, are nev- there will never be enough essential oils <laughs> that are potent enough to cover the stench of sin on our lives. Paleo cannot make you and restore you into your true human self. Only Christ can. CrossFit can never make you strong enough to carry the weight of your sin. And veganism will never find enough kale to cover your shame. <laughs> and yet, yet, if you looked at the way we spend our time, we come to our gurus over and over again to get this, the, the mystery of life. All right, now I'm going to start offending people. Social justicism. Justice is good. And you basically have to throw away your Bible to stop caring about justice. But there comes a time when people replace Jesus with justice. When it's all about being a part of this certain community and being known about caring for these things and whatever those things are, they are the trending fad of the day. And it's where you care more about making a point with a wagging finger on social media than truly making a difference. It's when you actually only care about a limited number of justice things, and that is whatever is in with your crowd. It's when you're more about Che Guevara and like socialism than the teachings of Jesus. And so justicism will never save us. It will become the lynch mob that will go sacrifice the powerful to make itself powerful. But we need Jesus to rescue us so that we can pursue justice from a posture of humility. Nationalism. Nationalism. It is right for you to love your country. It's a part of loving your neighbor. But when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, and you say, no, my country first, there is a problem. That needs to be repented of your impulses of wanting a place that is flourishing that you can call your own is right but it's too small it's the kingdom of God that you're truly longing for which goes beyond the borders of this country that is as broad as the whole world and it it causes us to trust more in the sacrifice of the other than the sacrifice of Jesus to bring that about. Careerism, where all of life is about climbing the ladder. And as you do that, you you soon realize that each rung of the ladder is a family member, a friend, someone, a coworker that you are stepping on to elevate yourself. It's when you exchange the rest of Christ that he gives for sleepless nights, just so you can get that sense of approval. This is a way of life that leads to death. And you can never fully work for Christ until you have received the work of Christ. And finally, comfortism. Comfortism is when you are, you are rock, you're not about rocking the boat. You stopped looking at the news long ago. If someone's doing something crazy or just looking the other way, because it's all about relaxing evenings and pleasant weekends, and ultimately you're being lulled to sleep by demonic lullabies. This is not the way of the cross, the way of life. And if we are to truly be God's people that display God's wisdom to the, to the rulers and authorities, that display God's wisdom to the world, then we cannot be about those things. We can affirm the good of those things, but we ultimately have to be all about Christ. And what does it look like? If we do that, we'll be a countercultural community that looks different. We'll be a community of self-giving love in a world of selfishness and entitlement. We'll be a community of wisdom instead of endless data. We'll be um, a community of hospitality in a world of isolation where people spend all day long looking at glowing rectangles. Into that world, we will offer the hospitality of the table in our homes. Will be a community of prayerful dependence instead of independence, of peace instead of hostility, of confession instead of finger wagging, of truth in a world of spin. And, and it would make sense that if you are going to challenge the rulers and authorities, the demonic ideologies in the world, you will end up with a degree of trials, of suffering. Because these things are present in the world, and they don't want Christ to be the Lord. You will get pushback, just like I'm going to get pushback tomorrow morning for those that I offended just a second ago. But if we're truly to display the wisdom of God, we've got we've to focus on Christ and not the powers, even though we know that pushback is coming. And finally, number three, and I'll close with this, God's plan for the world, for the cosmos— what is God doing in creation? And it says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word eternal purposes is looking back to Ephesians 1.10, where it talks about God as the one who is uniting all things in Christ. That, that there is one who is the answer to which the kale chips could not uh, B, You know, they could not solve the problem. There is one who is the unifying center of all things that takes this world that's being ripped apart and drifted in different directions and brings them to himself. That takes the good things of justice, of a nation, of technology, of all of those things, and brings them into their right place under the lordship of Christ as good things but not God's. And therefore it will heal all that's broken. It's pointing forward to the day when all things are made new through Christ, when the world is reconciled, healed, renewed. See, there's a day that's coming when Paul and others like him no longer sit in prison, but the doors are flung open and we are physically seated next to Christ. The day is coming when the tears from the miscarriages that we've, we've experienced Will be dried up by Christ as He reunites us with our lost children. The day is coming when, when, when work that is painful and arduous would be joyful and, and be filled with satisfaction, when sleepless nights are replaced by perfect rest, when former enemies feast together and linger for hours at the table, when cancer cells are crushed by the weight of Christ's glory and are no more. And so Paul needs to remind the church before he launches in this prayer of the big picture. Yes, he is in prison now, but God has a plan for Paul. He's got a plan for his church and he's got a plan for the cosmos, for the whole world. And it means that there will be suffering but that you have access to the God who is orchestrating that plan. He closes with these words that I just want to give to you. He says that about Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't lose heart. Run boldly to Jesus. Run away from those other things and run to him. He knows the trials that you're in, just like he knew of Paul's imprisonment. He knew that Paul, while he was seated underground in a prison, was also seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And the same is true for you. With whatever trial you're seated in right now, you are also seated with Christ, and you can run boldly to him, the one who orchestrates The bigger picture let's pray father we we thank you that you are the the one who reconciles and renews all things we thank you that you are truly the source of all wisdom and your ways are wise and Lord we pray that you would make us a community that displays the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities that lives into the unique good works that you've made for us, that lives into um, the reality that we are seated with Christ and have boldness and access to him. Thank you for giving us access. In Jesus' name, amen.